Oh, the audacity. Just... <laughs> every, every time I get into that quavery voice, I suddenly become Joan Rivers. Ashes. Ashes. Oh. And I don't know if she ever even said that word. That's just when Jimbo on Canada's Drag Race did an impression of Joan Rivers for the Snatch Game. That's, that's, uh-huh. that's what she kept saying. Jimbo does a really good Joan Rivers. Like, she does the best of all the Joan Rivers impersonators in Drag Race history. She's clearly the best. Yeah, I, I can agree with that one for sure. Two into the fold, a show where two best friends share their love of Lee Bardugo's Grishaverse chapter by chapter. I'm Jeff. And I'm Juliana. And this week we are talking about Six of Crows chapters 14 and 15. Welcome back, listeners, to another Six of Crows episode. It is nice to be doing the Six of Crows episodes. Talking about this book is so fun, and it's just refreshing with everything that we've had going on the past couple of months to be back to doing our usual thing. Yeah, it's nice to feel a little bit of a sense of routine in all those things. I know you and I, Jeff, we've both been a little bit hectic and crazy in all the things that we've been partaking in. Fun, hectic, and crazy, but still hectic and crazy. Yeah, it's that kind of because th- we're both the kind of people that we're we're always busy, we're always somewhere, we're always doing something. But it's it's good because we 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 aren't people who stay still. Like we have to have something that we're doing, some place that we're going, because that's what connects us to the world, to other people. Yeah, and I mean, this does too, but in yeah. a different kind of way. Yeah, and it's nice to have this back in our lives too, as a regular thing. Plus, as we've talked about before, Jeff. Six of Crows is such an enjoyable book to reread, and I have to stop myself from going into the further chapters because I want to just isolate the two chapters we're talking about because then if I don't, I'm going to talk about other things and forget what where the chapters started and ended because I could easily just keep listening through this book all the way through. That's fair. And I mean, thank goodness, thank goodness we have abandoned this idea which it seemed like such a good idea in the beginning, but thank goodness we abandoned it. The idea of trying to keep up this facade of, okay, now let's throw in all these hypothetical questions because yeah. let's pretend we haven't read past this point in the series and go, what does this mean? That was never going to work. No, no. We, it was we a great idea on paper. That. No, because... I think it, even part of that idea might have been inspired by there are still people out there doing podcasts for things like Harry Potter, for instance, who didn't actually get around to reading the books when they were popular. So now they're doing it for the first time and they're trying to do a show specifically targeted for people who have not read the books before. Yeah. And unfortunately for us, Jeff, and fortunately, because we know we love these books, we are not in that camp of never having read these books before. So... Mm-mm. Oh, well, the shock value is gone. But it's funny how when you go back and anyone who's ever done a podcast where you have to analyze something you've read so many times before, you always end up noticing things you never really thought about before 
because your brain holds on to the big things, mm-hmm. but it doesn't hold on to the little things. Like there's a moment in uh, one of the two chapters we're going to talk about today that kind of ties Matthias to Wylan, and I never thought about it before ah. until I started paying very close attention. Okay. Well, we will get into those small moments very shortly, but first, Jeff, lead us into the news. What news? Where is it? Right there. Oh, you can't see. You mean in the front? Yeah, in front of you. Oh, Oh, it's the news from the front. Yeah, yeah. Woo! News. News. That's all. That's all you're gonna get today. I'm sorry. That's that's that. That's all I got. Do not ask me how long I have slept. I'm estimating like two hours. That uh, it might be slightly higher than that. I don't know. The truth is, I usually get home from work sometime right after five a.m. I usually get to bed sometime around six a.m. Typically, I will sleep until about just past noon because I have to give myself time to do some things before mm-hmm. I go into work, or it's just going to drive me nuts. I cannot yeah. go home, go to bed, and then not get up until it's time to go back to work. I I can't do that. But today, I got up even earlier because we had to do the show because Juliana has to go to work much earlier than I do. Yes, I have to go to work But at you one. know what? This is boot camp. This is, this is boot camp because when my son is born in just under two months, I'm not going to sleep for years, probably. At least I would say three to five years, you will have a very sporadic sleep schedule at best. Gosh, yeah. So I just, I need to be ready for that. That's most of my news from the front. We have now had the baby showers. We have now had the gender reveals. Our house looks like the set of Sanford and Son because of all of the stuff that's everywhere. And now we are trying to figure out which things of ours to get rid of so that we can make room for his stuff. There Mm -hmm. was a raffle at work this week and Uh they're raffling off the typical stuff exercise equipment video games computers all these other things and they keep trying to hand me raffle tickets to put in it and i'm telling them no you don't have any baby things that is the only thing i'm taking into the house at this moment if it's not for my son i'm not trying to take it into the house i'm trying to get things out of my house because yes. I need to make room for baby things. That's that's where we are now. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's very fair. So if it's not something that a baby boy can enjoy, just get it out of here. Because I don't want out, out of your line of sight. Out of everything. Bye, 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 bye. Meanwhile, my love of haunted houses is only getting stronger. To yeah, no, date, you've been to a lot. I have, I've been to five now. So shout outs to the Dent Schoolhouse in Cincinnati and in Louisville to American Horrorplex, Field of Screams, The Devil's Attic, and Nightmare Forest. A few days after this recording, I'm going to one around the corner called Haunted Hotel. Apparently, this is the most intense one I've been to so far, because in addition to being very in-your-face, literally, it is a touch haunt. Ah. So a bit of an educational moment for anybody who's never been to a haunted house before. Most haunted houses are either touch or no touch. They'll let you know before you go in so that you know what you're getting into. If it's a touch haunt, they will not 
molest you, they will not harm you. They have been very carefully trained not to do those things. There is physical contact. That is what they mean by touch. So things like tapping you on the shoulder or reaching out from under a table and grabbing your ankle, but not to trip you, just to kind of make contact to say, hey, unexpected touch, that's scary, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Some of them, like American Horrorplex, will give you a choice. If you agree that touch is acceptable, then they'll let you know exactly how it'll work, and then they'll give you a vest so that the actors in the haunt know what to do. Yeah. And these are things that I will never be partaking in because I hate haunted houses. I hate horror movies because the anticipation, it's not even, and we talked about this in this last episode, it's not even like the actual physical like way people look or like the horror elements. It's the anticipation of me not knowing what's coming that is like outright murdering my soul when I go into these haunted houses. Like you can put me in front of like the nastiest looking skeleton thing of Bob and I'm fine. But if you have that jump out of me and I don't know when it's going to jump out of me, then I will literally shit my pants. So... And it could be that's like most of haunts. Yeah, that's why I don't go <laughs> to these things because I know myself too well and I do not like them. It's always fascinating to me to find out what it is that actually scares people because when we went to the Dent Schoolhouse a couple of weeks ago, there were these actors who were dressed up as scarecrows. And one of them turned very slowly and looked at this girl in line and she immediately started to panic. And so he did this thing where he started acting like he was going to run, but then he didn't. And she kept getting more and more scared. And then when he finally starts acting like he's going to charge over towards where she's standing, the way that she cried. I mean, after a while, it actually, it got you know, kind of sad I felt for this girl. But then again, there are signs up all over the place saying, hey, this is supposed to be a scary place. You're paying us to scare you. So, you know, we don't want you to cry necessarily. That's not the end game. But at the same time, you should really know what you're getting yourself into here. And if you can't handle a scarecrow charging at you when you're standing in line, then you should probably not go inside. But also, no refunds. Yep. Every haunted house I've been to says the exact same thing. Absolutely, under no circumstances, you cannot have your money back. If you freak out and you can't go in, no refund for you. Yep. And that's why I am not going. But instead, Jeff, I will be doing something which some people would argue is even more scary than going into a haunted house. I will be In a different way, yeah. Yeah. I will be running the New York City Marathon when this episode comes out. So... Now, is that like, I I know there are a lot of national and international running events for things Mm -hmm. like that. Is the New York Marathon still the, is that the marathon or is that more like the the Boston Marathon's the other one that I've always heard people talk about before I ever got into the running thing? It kind of depends on what you mean by the marathon. Each marathon, so generally speaking... There are six world marathon majors, which I, Mm -hmm. after New York, will have completed three out of the six, uh, which is a pretty big thing because most people don't get to completing their world marathon majors, if ever, until they're like in their like 40s and 50s for the most part, just because for the most part, Tokyo is really hard to get into the lottery for. We We will touch on that very, very briefly in a second. But New York is probably the biggest of the marathons out there, Boston is the oldest. So okay. It kind of depends on what you're looking for by what you mean like the best. They both think they're the best. 
And that's a like Yankees versus Red Sox situation right there in a nutshell. Oh, gosh. I know just enough sports talk to understand that. There are certain sports rivalries that I am well aware of having grown up in a house where sports is on all the time. And also, I get my hair cut at sport clips because they're the only ones who ever seem to consistently do it the way I need it done. But... I guess what I'm getting at is with most sporting events, you have the big like event that mm-hmm. happens every year. Like with baseball, it's the World Series. With American football, it's the Super Bowl. So I yeah. guess with running, there isn't really like a Super Bowl equivalent because if there are six across the whole world and you don't necessarily always get to do them all, then I guess it's perspective. Yeah, it's more or less like what country you're in. But I would say in the United States, Boston and New York are probably the two Super Bowls of of running just because Mm. New York is a lot more inclusive. Boston is a lot more exclusive as to who gets in and who gets out. So I think I'm thinking and I'll give you my my more revised review after I finish running it that New York is going to be a lot more enjoyable because Boston is... Oh, they're just the people who run Boston. I do not like them very much. So, um, tell us how you really feel. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. But (laughs) I will be in New York City on November 5th running the New York City Marathon. So, if you're going to be out there spectating, try and scream for me. You'll probably get lost in the crowd of all the people screaming. Yay! But you just say that there are six world marathon majors and I will have three done as of running New York. But in the, uh, and I mentioned that Tokyo was really hard to get into. Uh, but lo and behold, listeners, I am part of the 1% of people that got into the Tokyo marathon via the lottery. Um, so I'll be going to Tokyo in March. Didn't plan on it, but here I, Hey, yeah. Yeah. You know what? We should probably just go ahead and say this. There might be a little bit of a break for the probably. show in March because I mean this is probably like last on the list but my birthday is in March mm-hmm. um Evil Con in Evansville Indiana the anime convention that I staff for that's right in the middle of March yeah I'll and be gone for two Juliana weeks. will be in Tokyo so yeah. there's probably gonna be a gap yeah, yeah. So I'll be in Tokyo for two weeks. And anyone who has ever been to Tokyo or has any tips or lives in Tokyo, hit me up because I don't know what I'm doing. So <laughs> I have I have a st- uh, an Airbnb and I have a flight. So we're, we got that much under control and I got my marathon stuff booked. So beyond that, we'll just we'll see what's going to happen. I definitely want to go to Tokyo Disney Sea because they have a whole little mermaid section at Tokyo Disney Sea, like a huge like little mermaid section. So we got to go there. But beyond that, I'm thinking like probably want to do like a traditional tea ceremony and like a lot of like cool kawaii shops that are over there. So it'll be a fun time. If you get a chance go to the Miyazaki Museum. I'm not even going to tell you that you have to go in. But mm. go just the, I believe it's either a museum or a store, I can't recall, but there's there is an official Miyazaki place. Is it the in, Ghibli? That's Studio I Ghibli, right? I um I think so. There's a Studio Ghibli park. There's a whole park dedicated mm, to it. No, it's not what I'm thinking of. It's okay. 
Okay, we'll think of it later. But okay, so that's all of our news, friends. But let's get into a question that we have in the voice of the people. We have been getting some email. Yes. From a friend named Albert. Albert. What did Albert Albert have to say? What's up with Albert, Jeff? Well, you've been emailing back and forth with Albert, so you may have seen more messages from him than I have, but has he been just rereading the series, or is he going all the way back to the beginning of our show? I think he's been rereading and listening to the show, but he sent us a few different emails, but this was his initial question he had for us while he was listening to the podcast. Oh, okay. So his initial question has to do with Mal as an amplifier. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Albert is a little confused about why they have to kill Mal if the Darkling is an amplifier and can amplify people by touching them. He wants to know why can Mal not just touch Alina to amplify her power. And apparently when he first read Siege and Storm, he pictured Mal just hanging on to Alina in the final battle, but then they got stuck on having to kill Mal. So I think we are now, I I think maybe we're looking at the series as a whole, but in particular, Mm -hmm. I think he's thinking of the moment in Ruin and Rising when Mal basically dies and that amplifies Alina's power to the Mm -hmm. point that she's able to finally wipe out the Darkling's power. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I don't even really have a good answer for this because I feel as though we never really got a full explanation as to like why killing Maul was the correct thing or I think they just got stuck on it. I think, what what were your thoughts, Jeff? Well, you also you see Alina. She has this. Blo- when we first meet Alina, she has this block about even being able to fully unleash and harness her power the way she eventually learns to do. And when she's first working with Bagra, she realizes it's because she has this repressed memory of not wanting to use her power and hiding it somewhere inside herself because she's worried that Maul will be taken away from her. So that's really the mm. catalyst for being able to unleash her power in the first place to where she's really able to start to develop it. So mm-hmm. it's not that Maul is an amplifier as much as it is the emotional and even I would say spiritual connection between Maul and Alina is what kind of pushes her power to the next level. She had to work through the trauma of her past to even unleash the power so she can use it. And then when we arrive at the point towards the end of the original trilogy where Alina has to then escalate this power and push it beyond the bounds of what Grisha power is usually expected to do, it's not enough to just be touched by an amplifier or even gather all of these amplifiers, you know, from the trio from what Moritzova wrote about. Mm-hmm. It's really about the emotion of pushing yourself into the hardest thing you've ever had to do by also enduring the hardest thing you've ever had to endure. The absolute most unthinkable thing to Alina is the thought of losing Maul. So mm-hmm. it's not so much that he's an amplifier, it's more what it does to her emotionally that having him die right in front of her like that, I think. 
Yeah, combined with the power uh, that he's obviously releasing as that amplifier at the same time. So like emotional yeah. and mad quote emotional and Grisha, not magical, Grisha power combined in one to do something that is very like once in a lifetime just huge amounts of energy required thing. Yeah, and I think that it, it, it even says on the topic of amplifiers, maybe even a few times in uh, the Shadow and Bone trilogy, that you can get an amplifier and it will probably work fine, but the potency of the amplifier will be enhanced if there's a connection between you and the source of the amplifier, which is mm -hmm. why they typically prefer for Grisha soldiers who are using amplifiers to kill the animal that it comes from themselves. And in this case, I believe that's how that scene plays out, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right from what I remember too, Jeff. So, yeah, I think it's just the fact that we need that once-in-a-lifetime emotionally charged burst of energy for that one specific really, 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 really powerful boom to take all the power away from the Darkling and create the Sun Summoners and everything. And also, that's just, it's also just, I think also partly narrative because how lame yeah. would it be if after everything Alina and Maul had been through, they're in this epic final battle and all he has to do is reach over and like grab her wrist. And then that helps her kind of use the power of friendship or whatever. Like that kind of thing would work in my little pony. Friendship is magic. Yeah. Where friendship is literally magic, but that's not going to work here. Somebody has to at least temporarily die in order for the biggest use of Grisha power ever to date to really be pulled off. Yeah, no, I think you're right in that. So, Albert, hopefully we answered your question in a satisfactory way. And provided good customer service. Yes, thank you for listening. <laughs> we'll see you again next time. So, chapter 14 is narrated by Nina, and this is one of, uh, if not the, I think this is the second chapter we get from her perspective so far in the books. We haven't had too many Nina chapters. Yeah. No, we really haven't, because that's, that's really um, why it's a satisfying way to wrap off the second part of yeah. the book. It's literally the end of part two. We get yes. a Nina chapter where we start to get some insight into how she ended up where she is now, and then we get this little Matthias cherry on top because, again, I, I've mentioned before that I tend to think of chapter lengths in terms of how many minutes versus how many pages because I have mm -hmm. to do a lot of audiobooks. Mm -hmm. I think Nina's chapter here is about three times as long as Matthias's, which... To me, that says a lot about their characters because mm -hmm. Nina can talk up a storm. She's a very social creature. She yep. loves people. She has compassion and she's very extroverted. Whereas Matthias, he does not connect to other people. He's very introverted and he'll talk, but he it's like he weighs every word. Like everything is about purpose with this guy. Everything he mm -hmm. does, everything he says it's it's a crappy purpose because yeah. that's what he's been given but we'll get to that in a minute because at the moment nina is thinking about her backstory i i love when the the backstories are internal like she's clearly mm -hmm. reflecting on her past so we get to see it but at the same time she is trying to be present in the moment and focus on trying to make sure that Inej does not die. 
explaining to other people why she's not necessarily, she doesn't feel equipped for what she's doing right now because it wasn't her specialty, but she's the best hope that they got. Yeah, I mean, she really is the only Corporalkai that is going to be around for miles, if not country's lengths of, of uh, accessibility for the, for the crows. And I like the point that you made in the doc, Jeff, that Nina must have been a protege because we learned that she really had very minimal training. She was actually one of the students that in the original Shadow and Bone trilogy was evacuated from the Little Palace. And we do get a lot of nice little... Easter eggs, which I'm sure the first time that you read this book, Jeff, you just kind of skimmed over. And now, knowing the entire series and knowing the Shadow and Bone trilogy, you can see exactly where this fits in timeline-wise. And we know all these characters. Like, we get a shout-out to Zoya, which I'm sure your first time reading, Jeff, you were like, huh? Who the heck is Zoya? And now we know we're like, aha, Zoya. We love Zoya. We know Zoya. Hi, Zoya. And yet, this description of Zoya it's brief. We even get some Zoya lines in the form of, you know, her flashbacks, her, mm-hmm. her memories, but it sums her up perfectly. Her reputation precedes her, and it even mentions she's stunningly beautiful. Her beauty mm-hmm. is as famous as her practical capabilities. And I love when it talks about how she could reduce Nina to ash with a single word. Uh It almost made me, I remember thinking at first, if maybe this is the first hint that points towards Nina's, I'm not going to necessarily call it bisexuality. I'm going to call it pansexuality. Mm. Or maybe even at the time it was bisexuality. Don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But to... Just kind of clarify, we know that Nina is in love with Matthias. This description of how she really feels when she encountered Zoya Nazielenski feels like there was an element of attraction there. So the first mm-hmm. time reading it, it feels like bisexuality. But then seeing where it goes in the duology following Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom, we see that it's not necessarily about the gender binary mm-hmm. when she becomes attracted to certain other characters, that perhaps it's more accurate to say that it's pansexuality. Yeah, I mean, to me, Nina feels like someone who, one, can flirt with a painting on the wall, and <laughs> two... Doesn't it say something like that? That she can... Uh, possibly. Um, it says and, something about her flirting in this chapter, I'm sure of it. Yeah. If not here, then soon. And two, like, she feels like, to me, that she is more about the... And I agree with you on the pansexuality side of things. She's more about, like, the energy and, like, the vibes of the person, and it's not like the gender that she is necessarily drawn to. It's their energy and how she interprets them in the world that she is attracted to. And I relate to that so hard because that's me exactly mm-hmm. a, a genderless pansexual person. So I, it, it might, I'll admit, it might be a little wishful thinking because I just love the idea that a character that I love so much could also be representation for something that also applies to me but i think it fits i mean i'm I definitely make that case I, i'm in the camp where i'm like i like that kaz is i would say like a demisexual slash asexual character you know and as a demisexual person as kaz brecker being one of my favorite characters jeff i'm very biased to that too so join the club mm-hmm. Here we are. I, I, I love that too we each we each have our characters that we really love in this series mm-hmm. that we we also see representations of ourselves in that's yeah. 
fantastic. Yeah. And well, this is one of the reasons we love this book so much, too, because it has so much representation for so many different, like, people and sexualities, gender orientations, even, like, different cultural and ethnicity representations. And uh, I just love the, how Leigh Bardugo writes her books, and it's great. We love it. Mm-hmm. Earlier, we were talking about the uh, Grisha examiners mm-hmm. or the amplifier or the living amplifiers, I think more is what we were talking about with Albert's question. Uh-huh. And when Nina is talking about the missions that they're sending her and the other Grisha out on, like now they have to take a new tact because it the book, the series, the whole thing, the whole Grisha verse literally opens with examiners showing up testing children and if they are grisha they go to the little palace to be trained so they can be conscripted to the second army that's how it worked but now we don't really have that second army anymore we barely have a ravka to speak of after their civil war and we don't have a darkling anymore so now we're not sending examiners out to test grisha and after what the darkling did people are very very wary of grisha so the whole dynamic of how Grisha and non-Grisha coexist in Ravka is clearly very, very different now. So one of their missions is they have to go out into the world, they have to find Grisha, and they have to safely bring them to the little palace so that they can not only be trained to help Ravka, but so they can be kept alive. Because in having power, if it's underdeveloped, it's not going to necessarily protect you from everything. Yeah, there seems to be a, a like animosity and a fear of Grisha out in the general sphere of Ravka and beyond Ravka as well, too, because they talk about how they have been going to other countries like Novia Zem, the Wandering Isles, looking for Grisha. And some of the Grisha are, are easy to find because, as Nina says, in every little fable in every kind of fairy tale there's a little bit of truth and at the bottom of that truth there's usually a grisha waiting there and there's usually someone who's done a miracle and or something that the otskazatskia are seeing as a miracle and they go after these people i think we have like the hag of whatever wherever that person is from and they talk about how like everyone else around them that was a grisha they took but the hag was like i'm gonna stay here if they want to come get me fuck them i got it um (laughs) (laughs) which would have been bagra had she been in a less privileged position i can just see bagra doing that hunkering down in her little hut and saying ah Fuck them. If they want to come get me, come and get me. I'm, I'll go out in a blaze of glory. I'm blind with my anyway. my little tin cup of kvass right in front of me. Yeah, yeah. We get that vibe off that one hag that we meet up wherever they end up going. But yeah, there's an animosity in the world towards the Grisha. And Nina is out there with our friend Zoya, with one of the uh, amplifying Grisha, who you also noted too that... After their death, apparently they have their bones used as uh, amplifiers. The Grisha- oh yeah, my oh yeah, my favorite, my absolute favorite is apparently um, living amplifiers are living amplifiers, whether they be animal or human. Mm-hmm. After they are, I I would imagine the difference is you see an animal that can work as an amplifier, you kill it because. Yeah. 
in spite of, you know, how humans treat each other in this world, there's still the obvious relationship of human versus animal. Human mm-hmm. is higher on the food chain, so you kill the animal, and nobody here is trying to stand up for vegan rights. That's not that's not the vibe that we're yeah, going for here, not clearly. In but using the bones of human amplifiers, that is twisted. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, we kind of see that in the show, though. In season two of the show, we see the Darkling cut off his mom's finger so that way they can use that bone as an amplifier. Yeah, they do. That's just... kind of... That That doesn't feel to me like it's really about the amplification. It feels more about the gesture behind cutting off his mom's own finger, which, by the way, that's a showism, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's not I don't remember reading. I don't remember reading yeah. that part in the books. The only thing... In, in, in actually, you know what? I know that's a showism because in the show, correct me if I'm wrong. Don't they just skip over the part where they take her eyes? Yeah, she keeps her. They skip that. Yeah, they completely skip that. Bagra disintegrates <sighs> into nothing before they have her eyes pecked out. Um, I don't want so. them to hurt Bagra because I love Bagra, but just her without her eyes, I was really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's a whole storyline in itself. Like we talked about as we were going through these books and. We love the TV series, but definitely things have changed, obviously, and we, we've noted that many times before, that the TV show is obviously way different than the books, but we still love it. But that would have been True. a fun thing to see. But, yes. Mm. So, you can use dead people amplifier bones as great. amplifiers. Great, great, love great, it. great, great. But, Speaking yes. of people we'd love to see dead, yes. ugh, we get to meet... In the form of a flashback, so mm-hmm. Nina's out doing her soldiery thing. She wanders into a camp full of Druskela. She tries to Druskela. talk her way out of trouble. It does not work. No. Next thing she knows, she's being thrown on a, on a ship by human traffickers who are religiously motivated because they think they're doing a great thing. Blah. And their leader is the second worst villain in this entire book. Number two. Number he two. is tied for number two with Jan Van Eck. Ooh, who's number one? Dude, you know who my number one choice is for the worst villain in this entire thing. You know who my number one choice is. Oh, uh, gosh. Why Tante he... Helene. Okay. That's what I was my Tante... guessing. I was like, is it Tante Helene? See, it's hard to rank villains sometimes. I put Tante Helene as the absolute mm. worst because I think it's the absence of an apparent backstory, maybe, that uh, makes it easy to say that. But yeah. it's just, it's the way that she continues to victimize these girls over and over again, the way that she does it, and the apparent lack of anything that could point to why this is happening because she just mm. seems to enjoy. It's like she's a total psychopath. She just enjoys the pain and the torment and the control. The only reason, and I rank her as the worst above Jarl Brum and Jan Van Eck because in spite of the fact that they are incredibly toxic and they are awful and I hate them and they suck and I hate them, they at least seem to have the one thing in their life that they have a genuine kind of twisted affection for. I mean, Jan Van Eck obviously does not love his son, but he obviously loves somebody. <clears throat> and he's fooled himself into thinking he's doing this for the right reasons. Yeah, Tante Helene doesn't seem to have a right reason. and No, and Jarlbrum is the same as Jan Van Eck. His, his morals are very twisted, 
but mm-hmm. he seems to think that he has them because back home he has a wife and he has a child that he is very very unkind to and she your they uh, he get they get the better of him yeah which is still not good yeah and Yalbrum at least he he's his morals are twisted but at least he's got them yeah, I mean, yeah, his he's got real fucked up morals, but yeah, morals he's got, I guess. But he also, I think, knows, and I think this is something that Tanta Helene doesn't have in our view, is he knows he's doing something that's not necessarily great. Like, in his head, he thinks it's great. He knows, like, in the way that we're going to learn that they utilize Grisha in the ice court and with the Druskela, they, they, know, that they're, they know that they're fucking over the Grisha. Like, they know this, and they're going to use the Grisha to get their way, but then they go and they tell, like, the Druskela trainees that, hey, like, these people are awful and terrible, whatever. So he knows he's twisted. He knows that much about himself. I think Tanta Helene, like, doesn't view herself as twisted in any capacity, and that's something else that's kind of scary about her, too. No, like I said, it's the lack of apparent backstory. With Jarl Brum, it's very easy to see. This is a religious patriarchy Mm -hmm. where they are taught that they need to go out and do man stuff and that men are more important than women and that they need to hunt people who are less than them because god commands it which we've seen before there are examples of that in real life all throughout history Mm -hmm. so this is clearly inspired at least in part by true events And in this chapter, it's for me, the very worst part of the chapter isn't even the fact that they are toxic men doing toxic men things. And it's not the fact that they are motivated by very, very religious, very dangerous religious dogma that's going to propel them forward. It's the fact that when they get these Grisha in their ship and they set sail... They go down below deck and they start making all these jokes about molesting Nina. Oh, that made me want to like vomit. I mean, this whole anything that has to do with the Druskela and the way that they treat women and that the way they treat the Grisha just makes me want to like punch someone in the face and vomit at the same time. But it definitely is just so it's so like like uh like uh, i don't even have words for it when they know that they see these people as below them and they're like yeah let's just like sexually abuse these people it's like no 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 it's it's very bad no absolutely absolute no 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 don't do that friends no no We've decided no, but they've uh, luckily, I will say, kind of luckily, Matthias makes the point of like, why would you do that? Like, if these people are below you, like, why would you do that? Which, I mean, it's not the best point, but at least it stops potential sexual assault from happening. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's that's why we they, they make it clear of all the Druskela, why Matthias? Like this yeah. is this is it's Nina's chapter, but the way she remembers him, it's clear that this is why he's the Druskela that we get to read about. Because mm-hmm. he's the one who's not so far gone that he can't be deprogrammed or re educated 
or whatever you want to call it. Because while they're making these very not okay jokes about what they could do to Nina and get away with it, he's the one telling them, no, this is not how this is going to go. We're supposed to transport them back for trial, and that's what we're going to do. And I believe that he believes that the trials are real. Yeah, I think so too. Because he doesn't know better. Matthias, I feel like, is very good at being blindly loyal to yeah. what he is told and what he grew up with. He just wants... We, we don't get his full backstory, really, until the next book, I don't mm-hmm. think. But yeah, it takes a little while. wants to be a part of something so much, and he takes all of this very seriously he genuinely believes at this moment where they have captured nina and these other grisha and they're transporting them back to uh to uh fierda for trial trial quote unquote yeah he really believes that this system works he doesn't think that there's anything shady going on here he's just (laughs) trying to play his part and make his country proud yeah there's, uh, there's, there's one part of this that makes me laugh. The uh-huh. part where they're talking about how big they're going to grow their beards. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's this... like the, the typical mark of the manly man, man is the beard. But, oh, until you pass your oh. true skeleton test, you're not allowed to grow a beard. And then when you do, you grow the biggest, bushiest beard that you possibly can because that means that you're better than other men. And mm-hmm. I kind of wonder, what if you are the kind of man who Just can't really, hair. yeah, what if you're a baby face? What if your your hair follicles are not stimulated? Can you find a way around that? Do they have beard wigs? Maybe have a, one of your trapped Grisha fabricators stimulate your hair follicles and have some oh. hair. Oh, Oh, that yeah. would be can you that would be one of the dirtiest secrets for a Druskella to have to keep that you had to get a Grisha mm-hmm. to use to their power to stimulate your beard. Yeah. Because yeah. you couldn't do it yourself. I mean, this whole situation is giving SpongeBob the movie vibes. So <laughs> we're now that we we're men. We have facial hair. Now that we're men. Yeah. Yeah, big SpongeBob <laughs> movie vibes right there. So, I yeah, it's just oh my god, all these stereotypically like man, manly man, crapola things that these guys are doing just makes me like wilt and sh- like shrivel up from the inside out because I'm just like, why, 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 and like. I feel like you're in the same camp as I am, Jeff, where, like, you and I, we have very, like, liberal views of the world, and we understand that not everyone holds those same views, but, like, I am just of the camp of, like, why we, why, why, why we gotta be, like, fitting into these stupid, like, pre-established, like, quote-unquote, like, man stereotypes, and I get that it's hard of everything that's happening, and I get that it's happening for a reason, and I get that Matthias has this, and the Druskela are part of this, and it makes a point and a commentary on society as well, so thank you, Lee. But it definitely, it's just like, ugh! It's one of those things where knowing why doesn't really make it better, it just makes you know why. why. Like, in this case, 
of course they're trying to uphold this patriarchal society, and of course they're focusing in on something that only men biologically are supposed to be able to do by making the beard thing so important. And of course they're using violence and judgment and fear tactics to uphold the status quo, because you know what? If they fail in doing that, then they start to lose their hold on everybody and everything else in the world. They have mm -hmm. to admit they're wrong. They don't get to be in charge anymore. They mm -hmm. have to dominate things so that things don't dominate them and they don't have to feel threatened or admit that they are weak. Yeah, because you never know. Some non-heterosexual male, say possibly a sponge or a, a starfish, could possibly start growing some facial hair at some point and take over the entire Druskela community. And they he... don't even have to use real facial hair to do it. Nope. They could get fake facial hair from Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, that too. I mean, there are plenty of non-heterosexual male people who have facial hair. So sorry to break it to you, Driscala, but you're not the only people who can grow a beard. Oops. Uh, you know, it's funny. It's not really, they never point out, it's never direct homophobia, but it is obviously Oh, it's implied. homophobia. Men, it's not direct, it's indirect, but it's homophobia notwithstanding, because it's never about, oh, men can't be attracted to other men. It's about the role people have to play in society. Mm -hmm. Men marry women. Men and women get married and make babies, because that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. it's not about, oh, homosexuality is an abomination, and it's not okay to be gay. It's about, it's not okay to conform yeah it's not okay to... that's what it's about yeah, men it... are this women mm -hmm. are this this is what they have to do in order to exist in the world that makes sense so mm -hmm. it's indirect homophobia but it's homophobia all the same yep 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 exactly jeff exactly so but we round out this chapter with some interesting reflections from nina about her interactions with Matthias, which kind of like snowballs us into the next chapter, more oh, or less. Oh, she was in love with him from the start. Yeah, she's like, ooh, I'm attracted to him. She does not remember him. every... Yeah, because she clearly, from the way she's describing, the way she remembered meeting him, she did mm -hmm. not memorize every detail of every one of her captors, but she remembered everything about him. Yeah, yeah. And he definitely, even from these small interactions... One has something, like we mentioned, left in his heart. There's at least a teeny tiny little sliver of something because he comes back with the water. Is he nice about it? No. Do we learn that the cup in some capacity is going to save Nina's life? Yes. So that's a good thing. We like that. But it definitely, he is drawn to her in some way. He's not really sure how yet. And in the way that he's thinking, I think it's like forbidden to be attracted to someone who's like technically in their eyes, not a human. And is also he's not probably in his like mating season or whatever the fuck they call it in the Druskela thing where they court ladies, which pretty much means probably saying, I'm going to marry you. And the woman being like, what? And then being like, he, 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 he put on a dress. Um so, oh yeah, the marriages are obviously very arranged. Becoming a Druskela means that you are a total catch and the women are presented to you. And if you pick a woman and she's like, nah, I'm not really feeling it, I, I guarantee the women are not really asked how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. 
the mm. marriages are obviously very arranged and the women are programmed to feel like they should consider themselves lucky for any Druskela to be interested in them. Yes, I agree with that. So me, Natalia is feeling any inkling of lust, desire, attraction to Nina is forbidden. Which is the appeal of it. There is, I mean, I, I, I feel like we really don't have to break down that hard the attraction of something that is supposed to be verboten. That's everybody understands that. It's the naughtiness, it's mm-hmm. the not okayness, Ooh. it's the having to keep a dirty little secret. Who doesn't understand that? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the plot line for 99% of those like smutty romance stories out there, so. Exactly. It's because of class, it's because of status, it's because of being married or not. It's that's 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 what pushes a lot of those things. Mhm. We always want the things that we can't have. And Matthias is told by everyone around him that he cannot have Nina and Nina is like, "But I'm beautiful. Look at me." But that's what the whole next chapter is really about with this brief glimpse into what Matthias is really like now that he's not in jail anymore is everything that he is, he has been taught. Yes. And, and that's that's why Matthias is the example that we get, because mm-hmm. he's been taught these things. He believes these things, but he's not yet so far gone that he can't be shown a better way. And I think that that's really what makes Nina hold on to the memory of him and the determination to rescue him so much because she knows she can get through to him and she wants to so badly. Yeah. When I think too, we kind of see what you're talking about, Jeff, that the fact that he's just taught everything when he's removed from the other Druskela around him and his like known community, he's like pretty much stripped of his whole personality for the most part. Like he has some things that he's views that he's sticking to and everything like that but it just doesn't hit the same <laughs> no, when it's just it's, him because it's, it, it's all that he has it, it's it's the only life that he knows but what he doesn't have perspective on is he got arrested for being a slaver he got put in hellgate and at any point did the fjordan government try to intervene on his behalf and set him free no. Are they even looking for him? No. No. He's just Maybe a cog it's in the wheel. Because he got himself caught and they would view that as a sign of weakness, but even mm. that, that should be saying to Matthias, if that's really how they're going to feel about you, then they never loved you. Yeah. I mean, we we see this in like multiple storylines and stuff too, but he thinks he's like a really important piece of this community and just like a touchstone and a cornerstone to the Druskela community. And then he's gone and he's like, oh wait, why is there no one? Why why, am I alone? Aren't they coming for me? Aren't they looking for me? And the answer, like we said to that is no. So now he's stuck with the crows, whether he likes it or not. And he's stuck with Nina, whether he likes it or not. And... Um, of the six people who are on this mission, two of them are women, and they are the two most perfect women for him to get trapped on a mission with because they are very capable mm-hmm. in ways that he is not. Yes. They are intelligent. They are yes. resilient. Yes. They have certain skills and 
they are i obviously he is not concerned this is what i love about anytime there's dialogue between matthias and nina is nina is so clever yeah and matthias is not so not matthias (laughs) is just kind of grunting and not understanding why other people are not impressed with his swaggering masculinity and when they pull jokes on him it's like he gets it but he barely gets it he gets it just enough to know he's being made fun of so i I have two two small hot takes jeff Uh Uh, my first hot take is that i just saw mrs doubtfire the musical over the weekend loved it yeah but there's the character who is the station like coordinator for the place where um mrs doubtfire's tv show ends up being and she yeah. her whole character is, is like he'll make a joke and she's like i'm laughing that's funny like that feels like it was very much that matthias like energy of like not actually laughing out loud but being like aha that is a funny thing you said right there and like that's the energy i get off of matthias also my the other energy i get off of matthias is mal 2.0 where it's like just enough boring, just enough like blah, but I think that Matthias is way better than Mal. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, oh, sure. Matthias is way better than Mal, but it's that kind of like baseline, I learned it in school masculinity that we're kind of starting with here. So, well, yeah, because he's not whining and developing a drinking problem instead of just talking to his ex girlfriend about their feelings. He's just trying to you know boldly go forward with the only script that anybody has ever handed him and he doesn't pay attention enough to realize it's not working and yet from the moment he's out of prison and he's on this mission even when they aren't really getting along he is still by nina's side he doesn't abandon her and start kissing somebody else he's he never feels sorry for himself the way mal did so maybe maybe it's that maybe maybe it's the way that he never whines about how mm. hard his life is at least at least at this point we can say that at least he's he's resilient. Oh yeah, no, I think that I as a character like Matthias is my least favorite out of all the crows because I think he's the most boring, but he I mean he has a lot to contest up against. The other 5 crows are like really interesting characters. So oh, there's yeah. there's quite a lot to contest up against, but I still think Matthias is a significantly better character than Mal, like well like significantly more like developed and more interesting and more just multifaceted i would say than mal is and i think that's why like it he annoys me very much so in a lot of his chapters especially the ones in this book because my biggest problem with him is that he's at the point right now where he is processing things mentally and things will change going forward but he just can't be honest with himself like he's just like constantly lying to himself in his head like it's he's like i don't really love her i don't know i don't know he I, he just can't no, be honest with his are... own feelings at this point specifically no, because being honest about your feelings and processing them and stuff—that's that's to him. That's forgive me, but you know, in, to put it more colloquially, he's probably thinking that's chick stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's like women oh, have feelings? emotions because they don't learn to control them. Repress them is what he actually means, but what he says is <laughs> control them. Yeah, no, he means shove them into a deep dark box in the bottom of his soul and never touch them until it explodes with the force of an atomic bomb. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. There are some is. comedic moments in this brief little chapter, though, and one, uh, some of them do involve Matthias. Like, I love the fact that as soon as he steps on the boat, he notices that Wylan is not doing too well. And yeah. it's interesting because the way it's presented, if you haven't read past this point, you think, oh, well, at least he's not the only one on the boat who's struggling with getting seasick because his whole life, once he becomes a Druskella, is basically out on a boat and being out on a boat is the one thing he can't really do. But yeah. then I feel bad. It makes me feel so bad for Wyland because I realize that this is the thing that ultimately bonds these crows together. They each have a trauma that mm-hmm. as we take this journey with them through these two books, they will work through. And for Wylan, he's probably being incredibly triggered right now being on a boat. Because mm-hmm. think back, you know, or I, I guess think back, but also in a way think, think ahead forward. to Wylan's backstory. His father tried to have him murdered yeah. on a boat and he had yeah. to swim for it while everybody assumes he died. So now here he is on a ship again after having just almost been killed before even leaving the harbor. Can you can you say the harbor the way I like? Haba. Yes, thank you. That. Or as Jeff would say it. Haba. No, I would say the haba. I would say the the haba, and I don't blame myself for that. I blame Rachel Dratch because she says that in that damn Smat Pack commercial. Yeah, um, there's like one person in that. I I don't even think all that. I think I obviously they're all for. No, the the three actors from that they're all from Boston in that commercial. Yeah, that Chris happen. Evans, John Krasinski, and Rachel Dratch. Yeah, the last time any of them used their box, I I think John Krasinski is the only one who is like actually still retains most of his Boston accent, but like, but he never gets to use it apart yeah. from a Smat Pack commercial. Yeah, because they're always trying to like more or less like neutralize their accents when they're in general uh, shows and stuff like that or be like new york or la whatever specific but that's besides the point but we do get a lot of back and forth between matthias and nina in this chapter kind of hinting at the fact that they were getting along while they were Mm -hmm. stranded together and nina was like "Ooh, okay this could work and he was kind of hating himself for abandoning some of his morals at that point but we are not there now and they have to keep moving through the storyline and matthias does not really want to help but kaz brecker isn't making it so he can't not help and i like that about kaz so and just yeah. the th- when they get to the t- when they when they talk about the part about climbing the incinerator though just ugh, yeah so yeah, much anxiety climbing climbing anything ugh. that high like that and the fact that it's an incinerator like, i don't think i don't think it happens here but it's later in the book when they're talking about how well we better you know cross our fingers and hope that this is one of the days that they aren't running the incinerator because obviously that's the that only way this plan works yeah, their plan is, as as we'll find out, many of their plans are very contentious, very exactly. risky, but yeah. also very calculated and it's by it's going to work, but barely, because it has to. Because if it doesn't, the book comes to a grinding, freaking halt. Oh, yeah. Everything Kaz does is by the uh, skin, his by the teeth of his skin. His skin, was it, what is it from the three worlds? The wolves? skin of his teeth. The skin of his teeth. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so everything that Kasparger does is literally down to the millimeter in accuracy, and somehow he makes it happen, which adds to the anxiety that you have reading this book, which makes the book even better, I would say. So we like that a lot. But I know you made a note about Pekka Rowlands here, Jeff, reminding I you. I did, because, I mean, you mentioned that you saw Mrs. Doubtfire, the musical, recently. I, I recently... also saw Hades Town, too. You su- okay? I hate you. I love you, but I hate you. I want to see Hades Town. It was I've part of my really subscription a- for the. I get my P pack subscription. I've become really obsessed with Hades Town recently. I avoided it for the longest time mm-hmm. because Orpheus is one of the most frustrating mythological characters to me. But yeah. I realize it's it's not about him. It's really it it is, but it isn't. But it's not. We, we won't get into my analysis of Hades Town just now. We'll save that for later. But uh-huh. the point is, the reason I even bring up Hades Town now is because. I have been dream casting Patrick Page, the actor who originated the role of Hades in the Broadway production of Hades Town. Mm-hmm. I've been dream casting him in everything ever since I first of all heard his voice, but also saw what he looks like. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Whew. I'm getting, getting getting hot over here just thinking about it. But yeah. anyway, point is, I kind of, I, I started dream casting him as Pekka Rollins. And then I thought, oh, wait, we've done two seasons of the show. We already have a Pekka Rollins. And then I thought, but do we? That's fair. I mean, Can honestly. Can we just like recast the part? Will people notice? Probably. But nah. will I care? No. No. Why? So- because I want Patrick Page to be in other things now. So I will tell you, Jeff, I have I don't know what Patrick Page looks like. I haven't listened to the original Hades Town soundtrack because I just went into seeing the version that I saw with the off-Broadway cast um, blind, as I like to do with musicals I haven't seen yet, because that way I enjoy them more. Um, but I'm going to give you two quick hot takes. One, I think that that's a great cast. Knowing the person who played Hades in the version that I saw, that is a great casting. Whoever that person, whoever, whoever Patrick Page is, whatever he looks like, the guy that I saw in the off-Broadway production, and that vibe, yes, to Pekka Rollins casting. So I'm going to blindly agree with you on that one. Two, I'm going to come in real hot and say I saw Hades Town. I didn't like it. So I'm sorry. People have come at me for that. My, that's one of my hot takes and my views, and I just, I saw it and I was not impressed. I apologize. You didn't like Hades Town? No. I walked away from it and I was like, not for me. Like, I understand that it's for other people, but I walked away from it being like, no, I did not really. No, was not for me. So, uh, and I'm the person, too, okay. who, like, I watch Les Miserables is my favorite musical because I love to cry. And you cry the entire time. And like, But I also saw Mrs. Doubtfire, and my second favorite musical right now, out of, out of the ones I've seen, like, in person, is probably Beetlejuice. That was really good. But, like... I tell nope, you what, this wasn't for I'm me. not going to try to persuade you to like Hades Town if you don't like it, because it's it's fair if that's your assessment of it and you didn't like it. That's fine. I'm just going to say this. Andre de Shields as Hermes. If I if I went through every musical I ever listened to or ever mm-hmm. watched, like every musical I ever consumed, and I tried to make a list of my top five favorite performances of any actor in a role in a musical, Andre de Shields as Hermes would absolutely be in that top five somewhere. It just, it's dripping in charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. Him as as Hermes in Town, And also look up the YouTube video of him accepting the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical when Town was nominated that year. His speech is incredible. You know what, I can believe that because one of my favorite characters in Town 
was the guy who played Hermes. And obviously, I did not see the exact person. And my own personal view is that usually the Broadway production has like the best of the best of the best out in the Broadway production. And then the off Broadway has like the second best, like not bad by any means, but like the person in the Broadway production is just like usually beyond amazing, you know? Well, so, yeah. And that's why they are the Broadway cast. Yeah. And that's so I can. Why they're the ones on the Grammy nominated album. And that's the one, they're mm-hmm. the ones getting nominated for the Tonys because they get the very best yeah and i can see exactly why the person who plays hermes that you're mentioning would have gotten that role because the person i saw was dripping in charisma and talent so i can only imagine the way that this like person you're talking about was dripping in charisma and talent so that jeff i will stand 100 percent behind and i'll go listen to that later so we've gone off on a tangent about Hades Town. That was my fault. I'll take responsibility for that. To bring it to the end of the chapter, we've mentioned that Matthias is not clever. He's no. not quippy. He's not witty or sassy the way a lot of these other characters are. And yet this chapter ending, easily the best chapter ending in the book mm-hmm. when... And <laughs> I think it's Jesper who says, I'll have, if you, if we die, I'm going to have Wyland's ghost teach me how to play the flute so I can annoy you, Kaz. And Kaz says, well, I'm going to get Matthias's ghost to beat up your ghost. And Matthias says the best thing. My ghost won't associate with your ghost. Yeah, that's one of those lines in all of the Grishaverse books that you see on stickers. You see people writing places. It's just... A fun little line that just kind of sticks and leaves us on a great little... Matthias has a little funny moment, which aren't too many of them, but he has a little funny moment at the end of this chapter. And Chef's Kiss leaves us there and transitions us into part two, which we'll be talking about starting next episode. We will end... Our episode, like we normally do, the first part of the ending, with a fun segment. And this time it is brought to you by me. And we're going back to a classic because I found this and I thought that this would be a fun thing to do because I liked the way that this one was laid out. So we are doing a Mad Libs, friends. I do love, I love when we do Mad Libs and it's been so long since we've done Mad Libs. So when I saw this was on the dock, I got very excited about it. Yes, I found this one and I was like, ooh, this one has a lot of potential. So I liked it. We're going to go for it. And Jeff, are you ready? Hit it. Give me a plural noun. Sailboats. Okay. And then I'm going to need another plural noun. Glitter bombs. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. It does not matter. Uh, And I'm going to need a a non-plural noun, just a regular noun. Jackhammer. And give me two more nouns after that. Fish stick. Uh-huh. And plunger. Cool. And then I'm going to need a plural noun. Dirty socks. And an adjective. Technically, it gave you an adjective and a plural noun on that last one. Okay. An adjective. Mm-hmm. Um, sweaty. Ooh, okay. And then I'm going to need an adjective and a noun. For the adjective, how about stretchy? Mm-hmm. 
And for the noun, how about runway? Okay, cool. And then I'm going to need another adjective. Feminine? Mm-hmm. And then give me an adjective, and then after that I need two plural nouns. Okay, for the adjective, let's go masculine this time to go the other way. Mm-hmm. And then two nouns, you said? Yep. Butterfly and pancake. Cool. I think I'm just trying to pick words that are fun to say slowly. Butterfly. Pancake. (laughs) And then I need an adjective and a noun. Okay. Adjective swirly and noun dog and then i'm gonna need a verb and a plural noun a verb and a plural noun you said yes please okay for a verb pose and for a plural noun pride flags okay and then i'm gonna need another plural noun wigs and then i'm gonna need an adverb and a verb. An adverb and a verb. Mm-hmm. For adverb, you know what? Let's let's get a little dicey with this one. For adverb, mm-hmm. let's say sexually. Mm-hmm. And for verb, let's say pump. Okay, <laughs> sounds good what? to me. I don't know why those <laughs> go together. I don't want to think about it. No, don't think about it too much. Uh, You can think about it in a minute. So I'm going to need three more nouns, please. Three nouns. Okay. Tape. Mm -hmm. Horn. And toilet paper. And then to round it out, I need a verb that ends in S. A verb that ends in L. S. S. Why did I say S. S as in snake. Uh Snake. Swishes? Okay. And that is the end of the things that I needed from you. Okay, so this week, week, listeners, we are doing a seasonal Mad Libs. It's a Halloween Mad Lib. Oh, good lord. Oh, good lord. Now I'm second guessing some of my words. Oh, yeah, you're probably going to be second guessing it once I read this, too. Uh, Oh, dear. Oh dear. Listeners, I bring you a Halloween Mad Lib by Jeffrey. Huh. Halloween is my favorite holiday because we get to dress up in sailboats and visit glitter bombs in our jackhammer, saying fish stick <laughs> or plunger in exchange for a bag of dirty socks. It's so sweaty. <laughs> This year, I'm going to dress up as a stretchy runway. My costume is going to be so feminine. It will be made with masculine butterflies and pancakes. I'm So it's sure to win the swirly dog contest. I also love to pose pride flags for Halloween. I use special carving wigs to sexually pump my, a face into my cape. Then... When- <laughs> read that last one again I also love to pose pride flags for Halloween I use a special carving wig to sexually pump a face into my cape 
I knew it. I knew that was a bad idea. <laughs> then we put a horn inside it and light it so that the toilet paper swishes. Spooky! <laughs> and that is the end. <laughs> I like the way that the, the verbs le- and the way that the nouns were left out left it for a lot of potential, you know? <laughs> That's why I read this oh, one. Yeah. I was like, oh, this one could go sideways real fast. And I was like, aha, let's pick this one. <laughs> You know, I think it must be, I've always had this theory about Mad Libs, that when they first invented them, they just intended them to be ridiculous. Yeah. Like, fun, like, like, I put, instead of saying I put my keys in my pocket, it's like, I put my fish in my glove box you know you you make something silly because you don't know what it is but then i think after a while the people who create mad libs got an idea of how most people are trying to make them as inappropriate as possible so i think they started tailoring the the stories so that when they take certain words out so you can put certain words in it would make it easier to make it that much more hilarious because of being inappropriate yeah, so you can use special carving wigs to sexually pump a face into your cape. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. That came out great. I loved it. Great job, Jeff. You did a good job. So clearly we had a lot of thoughts about Matthias, because even in the chapter that's narrated by Nina, we get a lot of insight into his background and where he's coming from and where he's going. So what we want to know from the listeners this week is, what were your first impressions of Matthias? Did you hate him, or did you think he could be redeemed? There are no wrong answers here, and whatever your assessment of Matthias was is fine but we want to know what were you guys thinking about this guy when you first met him so send us an email send us a dm and let us know what you think because i cannot wait to hear what other people have to say about matthias yes and listeners thank you for joining us for this episode next time we will be talking about chapters 16 and 17 of six of crows officially starting part two of the book which is very exciting part three. oh part three of the book which yeah, is starting very part exciting. three we just finished part two ah wrapping up part two starting part three thank you jeffrey so if you'd like to get in contact with us between then and now or afterwards you can always listen to us everywhere that pods are cast and you can even find us on youtube at into the fold podcast and as usual, our Instagram is the perfect place to keep up with us. Juliana and I are both on Instagram, as is the podcast. So just go to Instagram and look up at Into the Fold, and you will find us there. Yes, and you can also send us an email, like our friend Alfred did at the beginning of the episode, and that is at into the fold podcast at gmail.com and don't forget we also have merchandise like handmade keftas paper paper keftas by made by myself and also stickers so if you'd like one of our new updated crow stickers you can head on over to the grisha trading post on etsy and if you would not mind, we would be so grateful if you would let us know how you think we are doing in the form of a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. And we would love to just gather up all those five-star reviews and read them on our show. So 
go ahead and jump on your favorite podcatcher and let us know how you like it. And don't forget the best way that podcasts are spread is by word of mouth. So thank you to anyone who has passed on this podcast to one of your friends, enemies, or frenemies, and continue to do so. We appreciate you very, very much. But until next time, no mourners. No funerals. Mm, yes. Ooh, don't forget, Jeff. Use that special carving waste to sexually pump a face into your tape. perfect segue love it please make sure to put your cart back in the cart racks outside put your basket back and have a nice day oh i hate that i hate that's one of my biggest things that will get me going when when i'm out in public out in the middle gosh yeah especially when they leave it in a parking spot and you go to pull in and it's sitting there and you're like what the fuck I just want to open my door too hard and dent their car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can join. We're part of the same club then, Jeff. We can join the club, den- the car denting club together. <laughs> <laughs>